in a low-grade tumour is you know, that somatostatin re uh, receptor uh, antagonist, the, the, uh, the, the best treatment. You know, we've we've come to that through through trial and error to some extent. Uh, someone used the term theragnostician, which I quite liked as well. Hi and welcome to the Terragnostic Talks podcast. My name is Gustav Vidar and together with me in the studio I have the fantastic Annette Andrian. Welcome Annette. Thank you Gustav. So gr great to be here again. How are you today? It's good, perfect. Really looking forward to this pod now. Yes, and we have our guest back for the second episode. It's Rod Hicks today. Take it away. Uh, let's introduce Rod once again. He is known as a pioneer, has over 500 peer-reviewed publications and has held numerous national and international research grants. One among them, the International Cancer Imaging Society's top honour, the ICIS Gold Medal, in recognition of his exceptional contribution to oncological imaging and to international education. Professor Rodney Hicks started his career in nuclear medicine. He witnessed one of the first treatments with MIBG in a patient with metastatic pheochromocytoma. For him, an eye-opener, to see the tumour shrink. He pioneered the use of PET and has introduced a number of novel PET tracers. Rodney Hicks is Director of Molecular Imaging at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre and Professor of Medicine and Radiology at the University of Melbourne specialised in rare diseases as neuroendocrine tumours. And for him, it's all about the patient. In a time when science focuses on overall survival, he asks, what quality of life does it bring to the patient? And the treatment of patients, he says, is not science. It is art. Terragnostics has, according to Professor Hicks, a strong future if we remain engaged and brave. You often talk about and care about personalized therapy. Tell us, what is that? Well, it's exactly what it, 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 it's described as. It, it's, it's modifying the treatment to the particular characteristics, not only of the patient's disease, but to the patient themselves. Uh, to me, one of the most important aspects of personalized therapy is understanding what the needs and wants of the patients are what their aspirations are and, and uh, treating them in the context of their social, their work environment, uh, their family life uh, and their aspirations for, for the near and intermediate future. In many of these patients, they don't have a long-term future and so understanding uh, what the uh, the best option for that patient might be uh, is, is a very important discussion, I think, and, and a way that we can as clinicians start to uh, work out for any given patient, what is the best outcome? Sometimes uh, giving no treatment is, is a, a good, the best management plan for someone who lacks symptoms and has a very slowly progressive disease. And, and if we can avoid uh, treatment until it's needed, those patients can often live an extremely good quality of life. Uh, but patients who are severely limited by uh, symptoms or in whom the, the likelihood that they will develop symptoms quickly because they have a more aggressive disease uh, progress 
then the, the need for therapy and the discussion around what kind of therapy that should be becomes critically important to that patient. And so uh, every time I see a new patient, uh, uh, the, the discussion is, is firstly to get to know the patient, what they do, uh, what their hobbies are, what their aspirations are, what their bucket list is, because you know often they're starting to think about they're going to die. You know what would you like to do that you can't do now, or that you don't think you'll get to do uh, unless we have a successful treatment. Uh, you know one of the most satisfying uh, experiences for me was actually uh, watching uh, Grand Design New Zealand. Uh, it, there's a, a, a this program. Uh, where they take uh, people who build houses uh, with special stories behind them. Uh, and this particular patient who came across from, from Wellington, uh, after they had a major earthquake there and uh, their house was destroyed in the earthquake and he decided he'd rebuild a house for his young family uh, uh, on the sands uh, near the beach was probably the worst place to build in an earthquake zone. Uh, but uh, he uh, he decided to do that. Uh, he had a young young daughter and young family. And um, uh, but when he started to do this rebuilding process, he was diagnosed with neuroendocrine uh, tumor, and uh, he uh, came came to us for treatment. And during the course of treatment, to which he responded extremely well. Uh, he built this house uh, and it appeared on Grand Designs um, uh, New Zealand, uh, this architectural show, and it was seeing him with his family and his friends celebrating this, this new house. For him, uh, success of his treatment was to build that home. He had a, quite an aggressive neuroendocrine tumour and he eventually died of, of that not, not long after he'd finished building his house. But it was a success because without our treatment, he never would have got to build that house for his family, would have never had the joy of friends and family uh, seeing his um, uh, dreams come to reality. And to me, that's a lot about uh, what we, we lose in modern oncology with looking at Kaplan-Meier curves which is you know, what we get out of a randomised control trials. We see two curves, one falling maybe a little bit slower than the other, and we see a slight gap between them. But what we, we ignore in those Kaplan-Meier curves are that everyone above the curve is dead, and that's someone's brother, sister, mother, uh, father, uh, friend, workmate. And the impact of that on, on their circle, the people who go on living. And everyone below the line is someone who's alive with disease in most cases, because we cure very few patients with advanced neuroendocrine tumours. We do cure some, uh, but most patients who have metastatic disease will eventually die of, of their uh, neuroendocrine tumour. And so every person who's below that line, who's still alive on that line, uh, is uh, someone who's living with the disease. And I think as a community, whether we're a pharmaceutical company or a doctor or a patient advocate, we've got to be critically interested in what the quality of that life is, what, what the symptoms are, 
how, how often they're interacting with healthcare professionals, how often they're going to hospital, how, how often they miss work or can't work, uh, what the limitation in, in their daily activities are, how much pain they're in. And these are all things that, you know, I, th I, I know companies are starting to do patient reported outcomes, but it's always secondary to the, the Kaplan-Meier curves. And if the Kaplan-Meier curves don't show a survival advantage, it's awfully hard to get a therapy accepted because the regulators seem to think that the only thing that matters is how many people died by a given time. And, and to me, you know, that misses a point. And, and I certainly, I think, made myself rather unpopular at several ENETS meetings over the years saying, you know, like, I, I don't care so much about the, the Kaplan-Meier curves because we know that they can be vastly different if I just choose a a group of G1 versus G3, they'll have a different survival because of the biology of their disease. It's got nothing to do with the treatments. Uh, and if, if I mix them up and or don't really identify how, that there might be imbalance in the number of uh, G3 tumours in a population, we might fool ourselves that a tr treatment's working or not working simply because we haven't characterised them very well. Uh, we, we've missed the fact that there's a group of more aggressive tumours within them. Your, your question in the last podcast about how important is imaging, it's absolutely vital if we're doing clinical trials, but it's also vital to the, the patients, I think, to characterise their disease uh, and, and work out you know, who we need to treat and when we need to treat them. Uh, I, I hope that's answered your question to, to some extent, but it, it, it's uh, I'm happy to elaborate, as you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, and we, we had a pre-shot before this podcast, and then you said that you we, we need a new type of science, we, you know, like humanize the science, could you? Yeah, I, mean, I think the, uh, the investigational paradigm that we've developed for common diseases and uh, particularly that was based on, on chemotherapy where there's a graded response, it, it's, it's not necessarily all or nothing or idiosyncratic in some cases. Uh, it, it's worked very well for those kind of common diseases where you can get a large number of patients and you can randomise them to tra treatment A or treatment B. And particularly if there's rather little heterogeneity in that population of, of diseases uh, and with stratification, maybe just uh, dealing with that through, through careful uh, selection of known prognostic factors. When you come into a rare uh, disease like neuroendocrine tumour, uh, there is a lot more heterogeneity in it. And even prostate cancer, which is you know, obviously another growing area of theranostics, we know that there's very substantial heterogeneity in that disease, that the disease in a 50-year-old male is very different to the disease in an 85-year-old male, that a transitional zone uh, tumour is very different to a peripheral zone tumour, that a neuroendocrine differentiated tumour is very different to, to a, a you know, standard adenocarcinoma. And so that heterogeneity is, is something that we are embracing in precision medicine. You know, the concept of it, uh, that you know, we may be able to select the best treatment for a given patient based on genomic characteristics, but I believe we should also be basing it also on their imaging phenotype and their, their age to some extent, and also on their personal aspirations and, and, and quality of life measures. 
And um, so from that point of view, doing the clinical trials the way that we've done them in the past of randomising patients and trying to pick a winner, uh, drug A or drug B treatment, C or D, uh, is, is not going to work, I don't think, particularly when we have a large number of partially effective therapies. And what's going to be more important, I think, is in subgroups of patients to define the optimal sequencing of treatment. If you have a very high-grade tumour, is chemotherapy up front the best treatment? In a low-grade tumour, is you know, somatostatin re uh, receptor uh, antagonist the, the, uh, the, the best treatment? You know, we've we've come to that through through trial and error to some extent, but the spectrum in between, where where are the cut points that we we move from an observational strategy with somatostatin analogs to actively treating a patient, not waiting for them to progress. You know, if someone's got a large burden of disease, a moderate burden of disease in their liver, uh, you could give them somatostatin analogs, but the likelihood of, of them um, progressing if they've got a G2 tumour is high. And if they progress, your chance of giving them a good quality of life is diminished. So why let them progress? Under those cases, we may be better treating them up front with PRRT, for example. When is it sensible to add, start adding chemotherapy as a radiosensitizer to PRRT because we know in all probability that certain chemotherapy agents will slightly increase the toxicity to bone marrow but may, uh, and, and in the process may increase the likelihood of secondary hematologic complications, particularly myelodysplastic syndrome and, and acute myeloid leukemia. And that balance between benefit and risk has to be personalised. Uh, if, you, if you have uh, someone whose uh, life expectancy based on their age and their disease is probably in the order of five years, uh, giving them an aggressive chemotherapy that might in, in two years give them a lethal hematologic malignancy probably isn't a good deal for that patient, even if it's a rare complication. Whereas if, if someone is, is 23 or 24 and has a, a, a six-month life expectancy and, and has uh, uh, you know, a very low chance of, of, of survival uh, without aggressive treatment, in those patients, you want to give them the best chance of cure or at least long-term um, remission uh, from their disease. That, that's what personalised medicine is about, but it it rankles a lot of oncologists uh, that they say there's no evidence. Um, and you know, I faced that in the early days. I remember going to ENETS and, and showing cases and they say, well, these are all anecdotes uh, that you don't have data to support. You've done no randomized control trials and, and, and um, you don't have level one evidence. And my argument was uh, that level one evidence uh, includes uh, when you have success, when everything's failed. There's never been a randomised controlled trial, for example, of penicillin in septicemia. Before the discovery of penicillin, every single person with uh, septicemia died, 100% died. And when they got penicillin, some people live. People still died because they didn't have the dosage right or they had some resistant bacteria. Uh, but as soon as anyone lived, the treatment was a success. 
And, and when more and more people lived, it was a proven therapy. So they, they never had to do a randomized control trial. In fact, it would have been unethical to do one uh, because everyone died. You, 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 couldn't, you couldn't say, well, let's give placebo to someone with a staphylococcal or a streptococcal septicemia or meningococcal septicemia because we know that they all died before penicillin or, or antibiotics. But I, I think, as I said, uh, we need to, to get more sophisticated, smaller uh, trials where we uh, more diligently characterise the disease and then based on rational first principles, randomise patients in terms of sequencing of therapies because I, I'm, a, I'm a strong believer that there is not one single best treatment for neuroendocrine tumours. There's not one single best treatment for prostate cancer. Uh, that there are many effective therapies, partially effective therapies, and finding the right time to administer it in a given patient in terms of the balance between toxicity, symptom control, and longevity. And Governments and pharmaceutical companies, unfortunately, seem to think that the only thing that patients are interested in is how long they're going to live. Are they, are, you know, are they going to live live longer? Uh, and and I, I think we need to to perhaps educate both the patient groups and and the um, uh, and the pharmaceutical companies that that. Uh, that while life is incredibly important and, and all, all we have, I guess, we only have one, uh, unless you're a Buddhist, uh, and uh, then, uh, you know, the, uh, in, in the, uh, the majority of, of cases, it's, it's, it's how we live that life that really matters. Uh, one of the things that we've done, I, I'm, I'm on the, um, uh, uh, the patients actually have a, um, an app on their phone where they can record daily, weekly, monthly, three monthly quality of life uh, measures. They can uh, record the, the the number and and frequency, uh, the frequency and consistency of their stools, their weight, their pain. Uh, so they have a number of different uh, uh, apps on their phone that all get put into a national database, and so uh, their doctors can see it and they can see it. Uh, and potentially anonymised in the future, other people can see it as well uh, with the consent of the patient and, and, and their doctors. Uh, but it's an incredibly useful tool for us to, to look at how uh, the patient is going over time because we tend to forget how we felt last week. We certainly forget how we felt last month and we have no idea how we felt last year unless we write it down and record it. And if we can record it in a, in a, a digital format and go back to it, we get really uh, useful information about the course of disease. I really believe in these really complex disease uh, processes by collecting all that information in, in a, effectively a big data format for, for um, individual patients that the future will be taking patients like that from all around the world, from lots of VNet centres of excellence, for example, and applying artificial intelligence to all of the parameters, uh, to their scans, to their genomics, to their blood tests, to their symptoms, to the treatments they've had. And, and that's, that's going to take what's 
taken Rod Hicks 25 years to sort of maybe work out a little bit of, a tiny little spectrum of uh, through experience and, and, and maybe applying it in a pretty uh, random, crappy way. Uh, AI may bring all that together and give us insights uh, in, in a really unique way. And so that's, that's an area that, you know, I, I think the next generation of nuclear medicine uh, oncologists, I'd like to call them, um, rather than, than, than uh, you know, necessarily imaging doctors. Uh, someone used the term theragnostician, which I quite liked as well. You know, someone who, who, who's going to be, uh, uh, you know, using imaging, but I, I, re I really expect and I hope that they'll start to uh, see the value in understanding genomics, in understanding targeted therapies and understanding different mechanisms of chemotherapy uh, so that we can rationally combine them to understand DNA damage recognition and repair mechanisms. Uh, it, it, to me, it's, it's a, a fundamental aspect of complex diseases that, you know, we're getting narrower and narrower in our uh, our knowledge base. Uh, you know, I, I, I've used the, the the saying to my fellows sometimes that an expert is someone who knows more and more about less and less until they know everything about nothing, uh, and, and and that's what the, the specialists are becoming now. They're be, you know becoming a uh, a super specialist in the use of immunotherapy in melanoma. Uh, and you know they might know everything about that, but that that, that locks them in and, and and constrains their vision on how to to uh, incorporate all this this information. And, and maybe we don't have 25 years to learn uh, about these things. And that's where we need to bring AI uh, in, I think. And uh, I think that's a really exciting area uh, to um, optimize clinical trial design. Rod, you talked about all can contribute uh, healthcare and uh, the patients, of course, but also the industry. And what would you say that uh, the industry could, what is the most uh, precious things we can add to to move things forward? Yeah, I mean, there, are, there are very few uh, drugs or treatments that get to market that, that don't involve industry, obviously, because the, the, the funds required to do that are, are really vital. What, what doctors and hospitals have are patients. What we have uh, as experienced clinicians is an understanding not only of what works, but actually in oncology, much more what doesn't work. Uh, and and so I always look uh, when I'm uh, thinking about a project or an area uh, for research, I'm looking at unmet needs, and uh, there are lots and lots of them in in oncology uh, of unmet needs, and that's where I think that uh, the next big advances for the pharmaceutical industry. I, I think the blockbusters for the common cancers are gone. Uh, and so uh, the uh, role of, of industry is perhaps to say, we, we aren't gonna have the drug that's gonna be used in every patient with this disease that's gonna give us you know, multiple billions of dollars over the patent life of that, that uh, uh, drug. But in our pathway, we understand this unmet need to a level of detail that we have three or four drugs that are all suitable at a phase of that disease, either alone or in combination, and that that 
combinatorial therapy can be incredibly effective. And even if you don't have the, 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 all of the combination, doing partnerships with companies that have a drug that through your own research or collaborative research with academics identifies synergy or um, codependency for survival of a cancer cell of an agent you have that might not work on its own and an agent that they have that might not work on their own, but put them together and you have synthetic lethality for that particular cancer. And so uh, those kinds of, uh, I think, very innovative um, thinking within the pharmaceutical industry, not to say, well, we'll, we'll just try and make uh, a copy of our competitor's drug. How, how can we cooperate? How can we uh, cooperate with uh, the ac academia in a more effective way. And, and as I said, a lot of that's about doing uh, smarter trials. I don't think the big trials are smart. I, you know, I think precision medicine and personalised medicine, it, it, it's smart medicine as well. And you can get much more information and uh, I think end up with a quicker pathway to um, uh, market by by doing you know better trial uh, design and and it'll probably be cheaper. But when you talk about better trials, what is that really to be more precise? You talked about smaller uh, trials. What more would you? Yeah, I I, I think we, we certainly need to invest a lot more money and time and sophistication in phase one two trials. To, to, to understand the disease. Everyone wants to get, you know, just get a bit of toxicity data and maybe see a tiny bit of efficacy data in a phase one trial and then perhaps find some efficacy data in, in a phase two trial. I, I think that we're really gonna be much better to invest much more in the, the early phases of drug development uh, in the phase one, phase two trials, which is smaller but if you put more money into those to really understand the biology, to really get your selection criteria uh, more precise, to understand who benefits, who doesn't benefits, if it's a sequencing question, what that would be, to take into an expansion phase. And, and I, I really think that, you know, particularly in rare diseases, that we probably, possibly, probably shouldn't be doing ever phase three trials. I think we should be doing expand uh, phase two expansion trials uh, of combination therapies, of, of sequencing therapies, uh, and and uh, accumulating information, not doing seeing them as a, uh, uh, you know, the, there's this trial and there's that trial and that's trial. Let, let's keep the data. That, that we've got in through a phase one into a phase two into an expansion phase two as part of our data set and, and analyze it more deeply. Don't break them up and, you know, we're finished with that one, we'll go into this one and they all stand alone. So I think uh, from from my perspective, uh, we, we, we waste a lot of time and, and in, in the pharmaceutical industry, you'd know that the failure rate of drugs you know, that have gone through phase one and phase two, once they get to phase three, is huge. Fail early, fail cheap. 
I've heard that as a motto of some uh, uh, pharmaceutical companies. Uh, you know, if, if, if you can choose one that's not going to work or is too toxic early, you can get that signal. You're going to uh, make pharmaceutical development much cheaper. Uh, but as I said, I, I think that if I was uh, advising pharmaceutical companies, and I guess I am through this podcast, <laughs> but, uh, if, if I were advising them, my advice would be spend more money in phase one too. Uh, understand the disease better. You know, imaging, advanced imaging, even though it's expensive, um, you know, PET scans, multiple PET scans, uh, genomics, uh, whole genome sequencing, uh, single cell RNA-seq analysis, uh, circulating DNA. If, if we can embed all of these new and exciting technologies into our phase one, two trials and, and extract as much uh, information, the richest data sets that we can, and particularly if, as I said, we apply artificial intelligence, algorithms, deep learning, uh, to analysing that data to try and get a, a, an understanding of, of uh, what are the predictors of prognosis and response uh, to treatment. And then uh, using that information to design really highly targeted specific uh, trials that may involve three or four different cohorts characterized on the basis of the biomarkers that we've uh, identified in our phase one, two trials, you know, that there may be a, a cohort of DNA repair damage uh, carrier, the gene carriers. There may be a cohort of G2 FDG avid disease. There may be a cohort of uh, neuroendocrine uh, uh, prostate cancer, uh, uh, for example. I mean, prostate cancer is, slightly different in neuroendocrine cancers in the sense that, that it, it's more, I think, a little bit more homogeneous, but still quite heterogeneous, uh, but it's a more aggressive disease. So you've got less time to, to watch, wait and consider, uh, which is you know, often what we do with, with neuroendocrine tumours because they are slow growing. We have time to learn more about the natural history, about the patient and, and about what treatments would be best for them. We, we don't necessarily and, and often don't have that luxury with prostate cancer and, and many other diseases which I think are going to come into the theranostic paradigm. You know, we, we spoke uh, earlier uh, in, the, in previous podcast about, uh, you know, we've got thyroid cancer, we've got PRRT, we've got um, uh, uh, lutetium PSMA, and, and actinium PSMA for um, for prostate cancer, but the, the the big wide world I think of, of theranostics is is going to be huge. Uh, that there are new agents, for example, targeting uh, tumor stroma. Uh, one that I'm particularly excited about is uh, fibroblast activating protein, uh, which uh, is is part of the stroma of many cancers, but particularly those that are. Um, uh, most resistant to chemotherapy. Pancreatic cancer is, is one. Uh, some of the serous breast cancers, uh, carcinoma un unknown primary, which we have a, a research uh, um, uh, trial in. Uh, these are really exciting. But there are other things that we can do uh, through 
epigenetic signaling uh, modification HDAC inhibitors, uh, for example, have been shown to upregulate uh, various receptors on the surface of, um, of, of cancer cells through epigenetic modification. And so uh, manipul pharmacological manipulation of targets becomes uh, a, a, an option. Uh, as does, as, as we spoke about uh, uh, previously, combining different radionuclides, uh, different targeting agents when there are multiple targets present on the cancer. Uh, the, um, and some of the, 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 uh, the rarest cancers are rare because they have very unusual mutations. And if we can use some of the RNA technology, for example, that's being used for um, COVID-19 vaccines uh, to uh, target a specific particular gene uh, and produce a protein that is unique for, for, for that cancer cell because the mutation is unique for that uh, 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 cancer cell, that could potentially become a radionuclide therapy or a, a gene therapy. And, and I think that the 2020s, uh, my own reading of it is that, that this will be the era of uh, mRNA manipulation of disease, uh, and, and, and both in terms of treating chronic diseases, but also manipulating uh, existing diseases uh, to make them more amenable uh, to current treatments, knocking down proteins or creating proteins that, that render the, the cells more sensitive to um, uh, uh, the treatments that we have available to us. Uh, and if in, the, in the last episode of the podcast, we, I think we talked a little bit about dosimetry. And that's, uh, I think that's a topic. Hot, hot topic. Field of hot topic in the field <laughs> of nuclear medicine. Uh, and uh, and as you know, I know the Nordic hospitals and, and uh, they use dosimetry mainly for calculating the, the kidney dose or the dose to the bone marrow. Uh, is there something beyond that in diagnostic? What is the best way of optimizing the treatment? Is it, you know, working with the activity level, or should we focus on the dose to the tumor, like in external beam therapy, or is it the number of cycle, or should we, you know, working with the peptide levels, or what? What do you think for the future? Yeah, I mean, it, it's. Uh, as you say, it's a very hot topic amongst the nuclear medicine uh, community. Uh, and I think the problem has been that we've not had very good tools uh, to calculate dosimetry. When we're giving PSMA, we've got salivary glands, we've got the duodenum, it ends up in the gut, there's a bit in the liver, there's a bit in the spleen, there's a bit in normal bone marrow. Uh, so there, there's, there's normal tissues that take it up. And then the tumours themselves are superimposed on that normal background tissue. And so saying how much of the activity is in the tumour, uh, how much is in an adjacent structure like the kidney or the, the liver or the thing, it's very hard on planar imaging, which is where most of the dosimetry has been uh, established. And so one of the, the priorities that, that uh, I made uh, with our medical physics team very early on in our therapy Gnostics program was if we're going to do dosimetry of PRRT, it had to be three-dimensional. And so a very clever uh, nuclear medicine fellow of ours from Canada who had a physics background 
did some work on uh, a program uh, to write a program to do quantitative spec work using the CT and, and uh, putting a high amount of activity into the field to look at dead time correction and various other things like that. So we, we, we developed uh, uh, a, um, a program for 3D dosimetry. But I think everyone's going to this uh, now uh, attenuation corrected uh, dosimetry using SPECT on the post-treatment scans of lutetium uh, that give off a gamma ray uh, that we can measure uh, or yttrium you can get some um, positron images, low quality positron images uh, from them. But to me, that's not dosimetry, that's dose verification. It's, it's working out how much dose, the radiation dose the tumour and normal tissues got. And the, the, the disadvantage of that is you, you can't give more after you've, get, you've treated them and you can't take it back if you've given too much. And, and, and so to me, the, 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 the really the great opportunity for molecular imaging are to develop tools to do prospective dosimetry. And that means a long-lived PET tracer uh, or a long-lived SPEC tracer that's suitable for uh, a therapeutic pair. Uh, so gallium, that's right, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, zirconium or copper or uh, um, you know, one of the things that, you know, it's interests me is, is, is using gallium-67 rather than gallium-68. You know, I mean, I grew up uh, using gallium imaging for lymphoma and, uh, and melanoma uh, in, in the early days. Uh, and uh, gallium 67 has got a, you know, a couple of days or th almost three day half-life. And so you can do multi-time point prospective dosimetry if you develop the right tools. Indium 111, again, could be uh, used as a, uh, a diagnostic agent uh, uh, you know, rhenium uh, techie is not quite long enough for most, but, uh, you know, if you've got rapid clearance, uh, technetium rhenium combinations, for example, and, and, and this is where I, I see the field of theranostics going is, 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 is thinking very carefully about the pharmacokinetics of your tracer uptake and distribution clearance from tumour uh, and normal tissues to get the best pair for the, the tracer, you know, we can, we can modify the tracer, we can put albumin binding motifs on it, we can uh, change its lipophilicity so it goes to uh, liver or kidneys to a greater extent. So we can play with, with all sorts of things to alter the targeting moiety and, and how it's handled in the bloodstream, kidneys and, and, and liver. That's one approach. The other uh, approach to me is say, let's accept if we've got a really good tracer, we know it's kinetics, which uh, diagnostic and therapeutic radionuclide is going to be best suited to those pharmacokinetics. And sometimes it'll be uh, you know, bismuth 213 or, or rhenium or it'll be astatine or, you know, and, and, and that, that's, that's another challenge for the pharmaceutical industry to get their heads around that. Uh, that, 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 that these targeting moieties that they develop may not be ideally suited for lutetium. You know, uh, at the moment, lutetium 177 is the sort of flavour of the month and everyone you know, wants to make agents to label with, with lutetium 177. Uh, but 
copper 67, rhenium 188, uh, lead 212, you know, the, 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 the palette is vast. Uh, and uh, again, that provides unique challenges for us in designing the trials uh, to you know, not only optimizing who gets PRRT, but which variety of PRRT? Are they getting alpha or, or, or uh, are they getting a combined beta OJ electron uh, emitter like terbium-161 or are they getting a, uh, a pure beta emitter and is it a long or a short range beta emitter like yttrium or, or uh, uh, lutetium-177? So uh, I've probably convinced everyone it's all too hard. Don't, don't bother. <laughs> but I... I, I <laughs> I, I really think it's worth the bother. Um, and uh, as we get more and, and better tools, uh, the, uh, it'll be easier to make those choices. We have to collect the data. Uh, thinking about Australia, you are really impressive in the way you have evolved and, and within the field of, of diagnostics. Looking at Europe, what you have seen, is there any takeaways or, or some advice you would give to Europe and also US, but now we are in Europe? Yeah, I mean, it, uh, it was an overnight success that, that took 25 years to, to develop. Uh, you know, so it, 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 it isn't as easy as I think a lot of people think it is. And, uh, and, and I wouldn't say necessarily that Australia is way ahead of, of, of Europe. There, there's some fantastic work being done in Europe. We, we had a, a slightly um, uh, better uh, regulatory env environment that allowed us to do things that were more difficult in Europe. And, and that's why I think we were able to get ahead. And it's, uh, in, in some, some regards, we had this program called Special Access Scheme was actually developed when I was a medical student um, uh, going into early uh, 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 medical uh, doctor as an intern. Uh, we That coincided with the AIDS epidemic and the AIDS uh, patients got a, a special dispensation from our government. If there were no known effective therapies, they were allowed to try experimental therapies because they had no other options. And so when I introduced uh, PRRT into Australia uh, and actually bone-seeking radiopharmaceuticals for that matter, we, we made the criteria that they'd exhausted conventional therapies, that, that, that they had uncontrolled symptoms or they were progressing and they had no therapeutic options. And we were able to use that special access scheme, uh, which the Germans call Compassion Access, and they have a similar scheme in Germany that has allowed them to, to do a lot of these uh, mini early preliminary trials, if you like, uh, under uh, Compassionate Access. And so th this is, is where we need a partnering of government, regulatory authorities, pharma and academia is to rather because compassionate access generally doesn't involve um, much data collection. You do the minimum that you can to um, uh, uh, treat the patient's symptoms or, or give them the treatment. And you, you do collect a little bit of safety data, but I, I think if we had compassionate access programs that were committed and required intense data collection and was supported by pharmaceutical industry, the regulatory authorities and the uh, academic institutions, we talked about them, designed them in such a way that 
each individual patient we treated on compassionate grounds became a prospective data entry, multi-data entry point into accumulating knowledge about the, uh, uh, the efficacy of, of, of treatments. Um, and, and I think uh, this, this would be a way to, to do small pilot uh, programs uh, to collect data and, and pick winners and, and possibly benefit patients in, in the meantime. In the Nordic, the, the cancer care is the, governed by, by guideline and we have this national cancer care plans. Uh, uh, how do you think we should fit this uh, approach of personalized treatment into this national guidelines? Maybe that was a big and hard question, but <laughs> no, no, no. I, I actually answered this question uh, in, in a uh, after a lecture one one time. Someone said, you know, uh, what you're you're describing uh, is not consistent with with guidelines, uh, and so how how do you get around that? And my answer to that was that guidelines for me are like the safety net under a trapeze; they're to stop uh, people who aren't very good acrobats from falling to their deaths. So it, it's it's a safety safety net. So guidelines are the minimum possible, and they're to stop uh, uh, misadventure, if you like. Uh, but what's really exciting about a circus trapeze act is the person that not only doesn't fall off the swing, but lets go of the swing and does several somersaults before they catch it again. And, and to me, uh, that's going back to Annette's question about uh, one size fits all versus specialist, highly uh, dedicated centres of expertise. I think most of the, um, the many of the centres are going to be hanging on the swing bar and just going back and forth until they get tired and they might fall off from time to time. But we need expert uh, centres that are going to collect this detailed data that I've been sort of articulating is, is needed. And they're going to take chances. They're going to let go of the bar sometimes. They're going to do things which are, you know, look dangerous. Uh, and they might be dangerous. They might end up in, in, the, in, in the net. But uh, if they catch the bar on the other side and they get to the other, other side of the, the, the uh, trapeze, then we've learned something. And we've achieved something, and and so I, I for me, uh, that's where I, I think that that balance between one size fits all and personalised has to be that the, the personalised has to. It's going to be more expensive, but because it's more expensive, there is a responsibility to the community to extract as much information out of the, those cases as possible. And to then apply it to make the the you know the the uh, maybe the 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 bar sh swings faster or lower for for most people uh, on the trapeze. It's a uh, uh, I, uh, you know I hope, hope it's an analogy you can, you can sort of <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, it's very good. Yes, but this with uh, costing extra money and and I mean. Uh, how much can we offer? How much can we uh, afford? I would say, when it comes to health, how 
I mean, with the, the rare diseases now and a lot of uh, very expensive treatments coming up and, and the gap, I would say, between willingness to pay and... Yeah, and uh, a lot of the cost of, uh, uh, of these drugs, uh, I think, uh, has been uh, built in because of the inefficiency and cost of our regulatory and research programs. But if we do more nimble, smaller, uh, and therefore, but more detailed, that they might cost more per patient, but they cost much less than a big trial, particularly a big trial that fails through lack of understanding of biology. And so to me, if we can make the process of regulatory approval, particularly in, in rare cancers, and, and you know, this, this is my frustration, I guess, with radionuclide therapy uh, in neuroendocrine tumors, uh, the, the peptide can be made for a few hundred dollars and the lutetium can be bought for a few thousand dollars but the cost of developing the evidence base to bring that to market in a relatively small population means that the unit cost taken back to the patient who receives it uh, is very, very high now. And, and it's not a fair uh, um, uh, return uh, on either party, not on the patients and not on the, on the pharmaceutical companies. They've had to invest a huge amount of money to prove really what we knew already. You know, there were, there were at least 20 studies before NEDA2 that convinced me at least that PRRT was a highly effective therapy and convinced you know, many centers around the world they were using it routinely, they were comfortable with it. But the regulatory authorities were not interested in funding it until there was a phase three trial. And the cost of that phase three trial then translates into what it costs the end user uh, to do it. That trial design, the expensive phase three trial design is, is really an anathema uh, to rare diseases. Uh, the, either pharmaceutical companies aren't interested in doing the trials because the, the, the population they can sell their product to is too small, uh, or it's too difficult to do the trial and they're more expensive to do because it's hard to find the, the patients. And the regulatory authorities uh, will look at it and say, uh, well, uh, it's, it's too expensive and, and it's not gonna benefit that many people. So there's no political mileage in it. So particularly in rare diseases, I believe that we need to start to push the paradigm of smarter, precision-based clinical trials, not randomised phase three trials. Who do you think should receive the Nobel Prize for their work within teragnostic? It's uh, a very good question. Um, Theranostics, I mean, there's there's been some some fantastic uh, work done by a, a large number of people, and uh, the. Uh, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's hard to go past the work that Eric Krenning and Dick Quekerboom did with, with um, uh, uh, PRRT in sort of a, establishing uh, the, the, you know, the basic principle of imaging and then, then, then therapy. And in fact, it, it developed uh, from uh, work that uh, Jean-Claude Royby did in, in characterising the um, the, the somatostatin receptor expression across tissues uh, using uh, immunohistochemistry. And so 
in, in a lot of my talks, I, I, I have the, the picture of those, uh, uh, well, actually four men, because it was Jean-Claude Royby uh, who did the immunohistochemistry and Eric and, uh, uh, did some of the preclinical work with Dick Quekaboom who did the clinical work and Steve Lamberts, who was the chemist who, who did it. Uh, so they, they, they were a really important group for PRRT, I think. And in the PSMA area, it you know was clearly uh, the group at um, uh, in Heidelberg who've, who've really pushed it forward. Uh, um, uh, Matthias uh, Eder uh, and uh, Michael Eisenhut, uh, who, uh with John Babbage, who, who really did a lot of the chemistry, and Ewa Habicorn and Clemens Cratchwill and the, the, the team, uh, uh, Fred Geisel, uh, who, who did a lot of the, uh, the clinical work. But they, they, they were really... The, the, the key ones I think in, in prostate cancer, at least in, in the paradigm that's applied now. Uh, and thyroid, thyroid cancer, uh, I think they're all dead now, so <laughs> no one's going to get the Nobel Prize uh, for that. Uh, um, and uh, uh, But uh, no, I, I think uh, Eric, Eric Krenning and um, uh, his team would be uh, worthy recipients for... Uh, establishing the, the theranostic paradigm in neuroendocrine tumors. Uh, who will you recommend us to uh, invite to this podcast? Uh, one of, the, one of the, the, the brightest thinkers, I think, in, in Europe uh, in terms of, of where theranostics is going is Ken Herman from Essen. Uh, he's, he's very uh, savvy, a good speaker. I think he, he's, uh, he would be uh, good to, to talk to. Um, uh, in America, Tom Hope uh, is is really uh, embracing uh, a lot of things, and he, he knows the science. It's it's quite impressive in 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 his understanding of the science, I think. And he's a a young guy who, who's really emerging uh, in in the uh, theranostics area, uh, I think. Uh, and I, th I think in 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 future years, they're, they're going to be major leaders in in in, in the field. Thank you. Let's see if we can invite them. Thank you for your time, Rod, and uh, hope we can speak to you some other time. Two hours with Rodney Hicks. I've learned a lot and uh, really got some new insights about how teragnostics could be an important tool for the use in cancer treatment in the future. Yes, and to hear about how Rodney talks about modifying the treatment, not only to the, the features of the disease, but also to the, the characteristics of the patient, the needs, the wants, the aspiration, and what's in on the bucket list of just that patient. That affects the whole story, the whole treatment. Yeah, this really personal commitment to the patients. And uh, after those two hours, I mean, what a fantastic physician we have with Rodney. And not only physician, fantastic person. And on top of that, being the one introducing PRRT into Australia, being that kind of humble man, I'm so impressed and happy. Yeah, so then we close our second episode of Terragnostic Talks. If you want to reach out to us, please send us an email, podcast at samnordic.se podcast at stanoric.se or uh, visit us on LinkedIn. Yes, stay tuned, stay safe. <laughs>